Sip, savor, and experience 408 sakes and 16 restaurants at the Joy of Sake on September 16th. Go to joyofsake.com for an evening of sake perfection. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and welcome back from the summer. <laughs> so we're starting off the season. Um, it's just after Labor Day weekend, and uh, we've got a great guest today to kick off the fall season here on Eat Your Words with. Um, I am joined by a brilliant author and writer. Um, his book has been, um, you know, just getting so much uh, buzz and attention, New York Times bestselling lists uh, for a while. So we're really pleased to have on Larry Olmsted. He writes the American Bites column, the Great American Bites column for USA Today. He's been a food and travel columnist at Forbes.com, and uh, he's on the line right now from Vermont. Larry, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Great, great. So this book, it's called Real Food, Fake Food. It is all about massive, widespread fraud in the food industry. Just to start off everyone with a little bright note for their fall uh, cooking and eating out <laughs> regime. Um, it's, um, it's, it's a really fascinating book. And, and you write that you sort of um, came into this topic and found how vast it was, for better or for worse, um, by first writing a story about Kobe beef. So let's talk a little bit about Kobe beef. And, um, you know, everyone knows that this is a very luxurious item. Um, you might see it in restaurant menus here in the States. But uh, you found that 99.9% of the time when you do see it on a menu, it is not actually Kobe beef, which is pretty remarkable. How did that happen? Um, well, you know, I had gone to Japan a few times, and uh, I tried uh, real Kobe beef, and I actually visited Kobe and met some of the ranchers who raised the, the Wagyu cattle that they use. And, um, you know, it's very distinctive. It looks a lot different than the meat we're, we're used to. Even raw, you can tell it's very different. Uh, it tastes very different. And then I came back here. Uh, this was a few years ago, and um, I would see Kobe beef on menus at you know some nicer restaurants. Mm -hmm. I tried it a few times. It never looked or tasted anything like I remembered, and so I looked into that, trying to figure out why it would you know because because a lot of meat you know is something you can ship pretty well. Um, it, you know, shouldn't taste different just because you're cooking it over here. But it turned out um, at the time the importation of Japanese beef was banned completely by the USDA, so there was no beef from Japan whatsoever in this country at any restaurant at any. Any price, but yet hundreds of restaurants had Kobe beef on the menu. Um, that has changed a little bit. It is now legal to import Kobe beef, but uh, so little is produced and so little is exported to the United States that there are literally less than 10 restaurants in the country that mm. have the real thing. Uh, and there's probably more than 10 restaurants in Manhattan that have it on the menu. Uh, and there, there's one, I believe, in New York City currently that has the real thing. So it's still almost always a lie when you see it, and they're just trading on the name, that famous name. It's, you know, the Rolls Royce of beef to get you to pay more. And there's no, there's no, I guess there's nothing that says here that you 
that you can't say that it's Kobe beef. Is that correct? You can just sort of say it's Kobe-like or American Kobe, and that's totally fine. Yeah, well, you don't even have to say that because um, the Kobe beef producers, like most uh, what are called geographically indicated foods, you know, foods named for a place, the, the most ex- famous example everybody knows is champagne, but there's a lot of foods like this, Kona mm-hmm. coffee, uh, mm-hmm. Vidalia onions from Vidalia, Georgia, lots and lots of products named for the place that they're made. Uh, and the United States has generally not allowed producers to trademark these place names. So Kobe beef was uh, unable to get trademark protection in the United States, even though it's trademarked and copyrighted in most of the rest of the world. Hmm. So it's legal to call anything you want Kobe beef because it has no definition here. Uh, the, where you start to, to break the law and you've seen some class action suits against restaurants is when they can be proven to have intentionally misled the, mm-hmm. the consumer into thinking that it's the thing from Japan. But to me, just by saying Kobe beef, you're misleading the consumer because that's what people think it is. Mm-hmm. It, it's such a funny, it's a rich like topic because on the one hand, I can see a lot of people sort of snickering at, um, you know, would-be gourmands thinking that they're enjoying the real thing. But there's actually a lot of real consequences to that. You know, they're taking a term that is it, it has a lot of meaning in Japan and the rest of the world and basically diluting it. Um, and uh, I, I guess maybe taking advantage of the fact that many people haven't had the real thing. I haven't, you know, for instance. So I wouldn't know the difference. Yeah, and, and, you know, Kobe beef, to be honest, isn't that important to our society. Very few people eat it. It's really, it's a one percenter problem. But I use it just because in the book, as as a glaring example of how easy it is for uh, restaurants and retailers to to, to mislead consumers. And as you mentioned, it's especially easy when it's a food that you don't really know what it tastes like. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, I talk a lot about seafood, which is a, a much bigger problem to American consumers. Americans are ripped off on seafood all the time, day in, day out, restaurants, retail. And part of the reason is because people don't know what a lot of kinds of fish look like, taste like. So, you know, uh, you go to buy red snapper or grouper, which are very high-value white fish, and they sell you a filet of tilapia. And, you know, the vast majority of people cannot look at that filet and tell a difference. That's that's really rife. I mean, you talk about seafood a lot in here, and that seems like one category that's just misled with various fraud and and it's actually a really um it's a really inopportune <laughs> timing because you know we we have such an overfishing problem too and um i would think that you know by um you know all this fraud it's almost like fooling us into thinking that we don't appreciate like a greater spectrum of fish that we actually do so like everyone's kind of rallying against around you know one or two or three types of seafoods that you see everywhere so you know Salmon, you know, the four fish, you know, as Paul Greenwork said, um, or red snapper. But actually, you do like other fish. Don't be afraid. You know, it's, it might not sound as uh, familiar or luxurious, but um, I don't know. Do you see that being a problem, too, Larry? Yeah, well, I mean, this, the seafood industry is full of contradictions, right? We produce a large quantity of really high-quality seafood here in the United States, you know, salmon and crab and pollock and fish from Alaska, um, the Gulf of of Mexico, some of the best shrimp in the world, oysters, crabs, Gulf of Maine, scallops, shrimp, lobster, and yet... um, we, we import more than 90% of the seafood we eat in this country um, 
from sketchy places with very little supervision, and we basically export all the good stuff and sell it abroad. So, you know, first of all, we're over-reliant on imported seafood for no reason. And then secondly, as you said, you know, there's these overfishing problems with a handful of, of species. So while there's like hundreds of commercially available and many, many delicious fish out there, uh, as Americans, we basically eat, um, you know, <laughs> salmon, shrimp, um, tuna, and um, Chilean sea bass. Well, and that makes up you know, the vast majority of the fish sold. And as a result, things like, like bluefin tuna and Chilean sea bass are being driven to the verge of extinction. So w- what I am seeing is a lot of um, chefs now who are more focused on sustainability uh, starting to promote what are called underutilized uh, species. You know, mm-hmm. that they're, these are fish that are readily available, they're cheap, they're wild-caught, but just bec- they've never become fashionable, like Chilean sea bass, like the blue catfish from Chesapeake Bay and uh, um, red drum from the Gulf of Mexico. And, um, you know, this is like a win-win for consumers if they try these fish because they're wild-caught, they're cheap, but they're also real. You know, I talk about in my book about how about a third of the seafood in this country is mislabeled and with, you know, desirable species like grouper and cod and um, red snapper, that could be much, much higher, 70, 80, 90 percent, that you're not going to get the real thing. But when you order, you know, um, red drum or spiny dogfish, you're going to get, you're gonna, or, or a cobia, you're going to get those fish because they're, they're yeah. cheap and there's no market for fakes and yeah. they're, they're delicious. So, There's, you know, it's that you know, people keep asking me, well, what can I do, you know, to, to eat real? And I give tips for almost every kind of food in my book, but seafood's one of the trickiest ones. So, you know, it's kind of this paradox, but by buying cheaper seafood, you might be doing yourself a big favor Absolutely. and the environment. I mean, there's no marketing allure, certainly for the spiny dogfish. So why would somebody put it on the menu if it really, if it wasn't, you know, good, A, probably, and, um, you know, definitely reliably that fish. <laughs> yeah, so, so here's a great example. Mm-hmm. There's a fish called lionfish okay. um, that's been introduced into the Gulf of Mexico where it's non-native. So it's an invasive fish and it's destroying the coral reefs down there, right? So they have a problem. Um, they want to get rid of this fish. It also happens to be a good eating fish. So a lot of chefs in the Gulf of Mexico started promoting eat lionfish. Basically, mm-hmm. you know, you'll get a good fish cheap and you'll save save our waters. So it starts popping up uh, on menus up and down, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, cool. Florida, coast. Get, get some traction into this local trend. The Monterey Bay Aquarium, which puts out its Sea Watch listings, gets behind it and suddenly and puts it on its list as green, you know, good, mm-hmm. good for the environment for you to eat this lionfish. And it's already gotten to the point where Whole Foods in the southeast has started carrying lionfish in its seafood department. And a year ago, you could not walk in any wow. any seafood no. rest, um, market in the country and order lionfish. So, you know, this can work. And it, again, it's a win-win. That's wonderful. And I, I realize I'm seeing a pattern here because it seems like there's so much, um, there's people, consumers as a whole in our food culture seem very impressionable when it comes to words and the language of food rather than the taste and, um, you know, something um, that is lesser than, you know, these, these like familiar words and these wonderful sounding like Kobe beef, you know, um, things. And it just, it's just a matter of branching out, I guess, as you said, and sometimes for very good reasons. So that's, that's a really cool story about the lionfish. Um, you mentioned, you know, some of the ways we can make sure that we're eating um, the right kind of foods. Um, You also mentioned that we should 
probably be eating um, a lot of wild Alaskan seafood or seafood from Alaska. And that's one of the best sources or one of the most um, you know, surefire ways to make sure that what you're eating is uh, sustainable and it is what it says. And um, why is that? Well, I mean, Alaska is a huge fishery that has very, very clean water. So even like wild-caught salmon from Alaska when compared to salmon from some other parts of the world is typically lower in heavy metals and mercury and the things that all fish, um, you know, build up by living in the ocean because mm-hmm. the water's clean. But also... Um, uh, Alaska has really good sustainability practices, and um, you know all you know. There's there's a lot of nonprofits and NGOs that monitor fisheries, and all of the salmon fisheries in Alaska are considered in good shape mm-hmm. environmentally. But also, um, the state as a whole outlaws aquaculture. There is no such thing as farm fish right. in Alaska, and it's not that aquaculture is necessarily uh, bad or good. There's some there's good examples, and there's some very bad examples. And about forty percent of what we eat today is farmed, but. Consumers have definitely shown a preference for wild-caught fish. They're willing to pay more for it, um, especially with salmon. And the problem is they're often not getting it. At, you know, Consumer mm-hmm. Reports did a test. Uh, supermarkets across the country, they went in, bought samples of what was being sold as wild-caught salmon, and, and then tested it, and more than 50% of it was not. Wow. You know, more than half the time, you were just getting screwed. So at least when you know if you want... If you want uh, farm salmon, it's very easy to buy. But if you want wild-caught salmon, which a lot of people do, it's harder to buy reliably and not get ripped off. And, and that's why Alaska is a great bet for it. Yeah. It's all wild. I thought it was pretty cool that um, the state has it written into their constitution that um, you know there's a requirement, certain me- measurements to um, maintain the fisheries there in a sustainable way. So that's... That's pretty unique. Um, you also mentioned that you know we should just uh, buy more seafood from markets and cook it ourselves rather than go to restaurants. I mean, that's another reason to cook and not go to restaurants. But uh, do you do you think that is that because it's just so easy to get away with it on a restaurant? It's well, I mean, we're disconnected in general as Americans from, like, where our, where our food actually comes from. You know, very few people, you know, slaughter a pig or slaughter a cow. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't really be expected to. You know, it's, it's, right. it's, it's a lot of food. But you can buy a whole fish, right? And, yeah. and, and you know, I mean, in most of the world, and, you know, certainly um, uh, ethnic groups within the U.S. do. You can go down to Chinatown, and there's lots of whole fish for, for sale because, you know, in Chinese cuisine, it's very common to cook whole fish, and, and Vietnamese cuisine, and lots of Asian cuisine, but it's not, and, and, and in uh, a lot of Latin cuisines, but it's just not really common uh, in, in American comfort food cooking. You know, we go and we get a steak or a filet, of fish, not typically a whole fish. Right. But if you do buy a whole fish, you really can't be ripped off. If you know what a red snapper looks like, <laughs> if you buy a red snapper, yeah. you're going to get it. But you don't know what a red snapper fillet looks like once it's cut up. Also, restaurants typically, are, you know, seventy um, percent of the seafood consumed in the United States is eaten in restaurants. People just don't cook seafood as much as home as they do yeah. other things. And you know, there's a perception that it can be difficult. You can dry it out. It's tricky. It's hard to to sometimes clean. It's hard to, hard to cook right. Um, you know, and, and some of those things are true. But you control the process much better. And there's a lot of these fish that are common substitutes in restaurants that you know you've never even heard of, like panga and bassy, uh, uh, what's it called, panga and uh, I forget the other one, but there's a couple Definitely of uh, swai, of <laughs> these farmed Asian catfish that are basically imported to be substituted for other fish. So you're not going to go down to the fish market and buy like a pound no. of panga. So, you know, you control it much better when you cook it yourself. Absolutely. And, you know, seeing the head on the fish, uh, not only does it indicate what kind of fish it is, but 
um, it also shows you how fresh it is. So I think that that's a big reason why it's there when you go to the fish markets and uh, you know people are wanting to buy the freshest one. Even though I know some people are very squeamish about the fish heads, but you know that'll help you buy. Wisely. And a lot of places will still, you know, butcher it for you. You mm-hmm. know, you can yeah. pick uh, a fish and then they'll clean it and everything in right. front of you. So you right. get the best of both worlds. I have a friend who's a chef from the Dominican Republic, and he only buys whole fish, and he can like look at the eye and look at the gills and the color know of the scales and killed. poke yeah. the fish and know whether it's fresh or not. Right, right. Um, we'll talk a lot more about some of these other foods that are commonly uh, fraud um, right after a quick little commercial break. The Joy of Sake invites you to the largest and liveliest sake tasting event in New York. With over 400 premium sakes to taste, including gold and silver award winners from the U.S. National Sake Appraisal and 16 of New York's top restaurants providing sake-licious appetizers. The event takes place on Friday, September 16th from 6.30 to 9.30 at the Metropolitan Pavilion on 18th Street. You'll be able to sip, savor, and experience a record 408 premium sakes, all in peak condition, with over half of them unavailable in the U.S. and exclusively for the joy of sake. All categories of sake will be represented, with over half from the elite Daiginjo sakes. Plus, nibble on sake-inspired appetizers, all carefully curated and perfectly paired with two creative poke stations by Narita and Sakamai, plus elegantly crafted appetizers from Sushi Nakazawa, Sakagura, Zuma, and more. Celebrate the world's finest sakes in an evening of sake perfection at the Joy of Sake. For more information, go to joyofsake.com. All right, we're back on Eat Your Words, talking to Larry Olmstead. He's the author of Real Food, Fake Food, What You Don't Know About What You're Eating and What You Can Do About It. So, Larry, before we talk about some of these other foods um, that you that you go through in depth, um, how exactly, how long has this been going on? It just strikes me as, you know, it's hard, I'm, I'm sure it's impossible to know for sure, but do you, do you have any idea of if we're getting worse and worse as time goes on and, and with regards to food fraud? And uh, how widespread it is, or have people just since the beginning of like, you know, selling things, have <laughs> been doing fraud with food? What do you think? Uh, I think it's you know it certainly goes back at least to the Middle Ages. So you know mm-hmm. we're talking hundreds hundreds of years, and actually there's there's a, a evidence of of doctoring um, olive oil and wine going back to uh, ancient Roman times. So so you know it's definitely not a new problem. Mm-hmm. It's you know it used to be very common um, in um, the UK for. Uh, Things you know, coffee to have ground up um, products like sawdust added to it, or milk to be cut with flour. You know, and this is hundreds of years ago, but it's just become much, much more. Um, and, and tea, tea was often um, uh, to make tea green. They would take uh, cheaper regular tea and and add copper to it to turn oh. it green. You know, so some really dangerous uh, kind of classic frauds. But it's become a lot more sophisticated because there's more testing and. Um, uh, you know more more laboratory processes available, but it's estimated to be about a fifty billion dollar a year industry food fraud. So it's it's a it's a real deal. There's organized crime involved. There's rings, uh, and it happens at pretty much every level: uh, production, middlemen, restaurants, retail. 
Okay. So, I mean, it's it's also just so surprising now because we think that, you know, we have all these protocols and we have the USDA and so and so and so. The ingredients are printed here. But, um, yeah, it's um, it seems a little bit uh, timeless in a way. And, and what, what about, um, let's talk about extra virgin olive oil because this is, an, this is such a why this is such a common household product but a lot of it is um you know sold in the united states um uh, you know it, it's not exactly extra virgin olive oil or not even olive oil sometimes well so the uh, university of california davis has an olive center that you know uh, devoted to the olive industry mm-hmm. and they've done a lot of tests and in their sort of con- national consumer test they found the majority uh, well more than half of uh, the bottles of labeled extra virgin olive oil for sale at retail did not meet the standard to be wow. called extra virgin. There's a legal standard. There's a couple of legal standards. There's a chemical composition standard, and there's also a sensory testing standard. Um, so they failed one or both of those. And there's been a number of other similar studies. 60 Minutes earlier this year estimated as much as 80% of the olive oil was defective. Uh, I just read there was a study done recently in Germany. They tested the 26 top super market brands, half of them failed. Um, I kind of been following the topic even since my book came out, a couple of massive seizures of counterfeit extra virgin olive oil in Italy, uh, another big uh, problem, problems in Spain and France. So, you know, uh, uh, even in, in Taiwan, an importer just got sentenced to jail and fined, I think, $15 million for a massive, you know, he was taking uh, palm oil, coloring mm. it, and relabeling it extra virgin olive oil. And you so can sometimes see- there's adulteration where it's, it's, you know, cut with another kind of cheaper oil. More often, I think, in this country, it's just, you know, it's either a lower quality olive oil to begin with, mm-hmm. it's old uh or it's um, sometimes mixed with refined uh, olive oil, which cannot by law be called virgin or extra virgin, um, uh, which has basically been distilled or thermically treated. So, you know, you lose some of the nutritional values. The good news is um, extra virgin olive oil, when it's really extra virgin, is delicious. It's really good for you. It's the healthiest oil. I love it. I use way more than the average American. I want people to love olive oil. So that's why Mm -hmm. I I spent a lot of time in the book giving tips on how to buy the good stuff. And, you know, your, your audience is, is pretty lucky because you're in New York City. There's a lot of really uh, easy True. access to good yeah. olive oil. You know, stores like Owen Company, which is in Grand Central in the Village, uh, Frankie Spuntino, the Italian restaurant down on Hudson Street, and they have one in Brooklyn. They make their own oil that's really good from Sicily. They even sell that at Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you have, you have access to a lot of good oil, but I personally, you know, do not buy, you know, like the supermarket brand. Right. And I just did a taste test. I went on... Um, uh, the ABC News, and I brought just two bottles I bought randomly in the New York supermarket and a bottle of the oil I use at home, opened them and let the anchor taste them, and they were like, wow, this is so much better. Hmm. So we should stay away from, like, the big kind of, I guess, like the big brands. It's yeah, just I mean, a, they're the ones that typically, you know, there was another big indictment in Italy. They're always being investigated, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the problem is, you know, that the big ones, they buy oil from all over the Mediterranean right. basin. They blend it. Um, they sometimes yeah. hold it for a really long time. Olive oil should be fresh. Um, and you can really, you know, like we were saying about seafood and Kobe beef, if you haven't tasted really good olive oil, it's easy to be fooled. But once you do, you, you can never go back. I mean, right. it's just so much better. 
better. I had a chef at the Culinary Institute of America told me drinking, you know, tasting olive oil should be like tasting the sun. It's the it's the mm-hmm. taste of ripeness, and it's it's really true. People, I've given samples to people who just had no idea how good olive oil can be, and they're like, "Wow, now I understand why in Greece they 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 consume twenty six times as much as we do in the U.S." Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's it's a tradition. So it's it's you know, we want to preserve the real thing and not again like totally dilute the meaning of uh, extra virgin olive oil as well as enjoy how great it actually is. So um yeah, so thanks for the tips on that. And uh one one ingredient I would think that is very it's a little more hard to fudge and like kind of doctor and make make look like the real thing is parmesan. But you report that um you know, as much as Oh, oh, sorry, much of the 100% of Parmesan in the United States is cut with something like cheaper cheeses and, and sometimes wood pulp. And like how does, that sounds a little sophisticated to manufacture, right? <laughs> but, yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of problems with, with uh, Parmesan cheese in the United States. So in my opinion, you know, all domestic Parmesan is fake because it's a copy it's of yeah. uh, Parmesan cheese from Parma, Italy, which is, you know, made under very strict legal standards. Again, like we, we talked about earlier, yeah. the geographically indicated product. So they're not able to get protection for the name Parmesan. But, you know, in Italy, it's been made uh, the same way for 800 years. There's all kinds of laws of what the cows can, can only eat natural food. They can't even eat grass that's been fertilized or used pesticides. The milk is, is, is as pure as you could imagine. There's only three ingredients allowed in the cheese, milk, salt, and rennet. It's like a superfood. It's so pure. It's so nutritious. Uh, it's nutrient-dense. It was picked by NASA to go with the astronauts into space. But you can make any kind of cheese you want in the United States mm-hmm. with all kinds of additives and preservatives and call it Parmesan. And again, I went on the news a couple of weeks ago, and I brought a chunk of uh, Parmesan from Italy, which is, again, readily available. You can buy it, you know, at Murray's or uh, lots That's of stores. Parmigiano Reggiano, and, right? Yeah. yeah, Parmesan Reggiano. Mm-hmm. And Parmesan is just the English translation of the name of the cheese. So, you yeah. know, people say, oh, but it's a different word, but it's not. You know, like mm-hmm. we, we say we say made in Italy. We don't say made in Italia, which is the Italian name for Italy. You <laughs> right, know, we right. use the, the, the translation. Yeah. So Parmesan is the English translation and has been for hundreds of years before the United States existed. Uh, and you you buy a, a wedge of Parmesan cheese here in the supermarket. Oof. It doesn't even, it doesn't look remotely the same. It's, you know, it's supposed to be kind of craggy and chunky yeah. and crystally, and it just looks like processed cheese. It looks like a slab of, uh, of brie or something. You know, it's just a perfect triangle. And um, but then, you know, on top of that, uh, in the grated Parmesan, uh, that in the in little canisters, that's where they found all this added cellulose, which is, a, a, you know, the media called it wood pulp or sawdust. It's really not. It's plant fiber, but, you know, it's not milk, and it doesn't belong in cheese. It's, it's put in there to keep the grated cheese from, from um, clumping on the shelf. It's an anti-caking agent. Mm-hmm. But, you know, typically to do that, you would add 2 to 3% cellulose, and when Inside Edition tested it, so they found one cheese that was 21% cellulose. You know, so you're, you're, you're taking a cheap cheese and cutting it with one of the few things you can find that's cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the, that wood pulp part is just like, it's so, uh, you know, it, it's very disconcerting. And um, I can totally see why, you know, in all these cases, it just, it's so much easier to to buy the real thing when you shop, you know, for yourself rather than go to a restaurant. So it sounds like that's, you know, and, and also it'll help you like trying to kind of like educate yourself, even if you just sort of browse around and get a sense and smell things and taste things. 
Um, yeah, and that you know that's one of the good takeaways from my book is a lot of these problems are very easy to solve mm-hmm. if you know that there's a problem. Right. You know, if somebody doesn't know that there's a fake Parmesan racket, they, they they might buy it. But once they know, buying the real thing is easy to do every right. time. And if we keep buying it, then they're going to keep faking it. So that, that's another takeaway. I hope. Um, well, so Larry, are you are you working on many more different food frauds? I'm curious, since you wrote this book and you covered so much, have you are you like itching to to write a sequel? Um, since uh, I don't know, have you discovered anything else new that uh, needs to be kind of debunked? I mean, there's some there's stuff kind of breaking all the time. Mm-hmm. I've said that I think that the next you know big publicized scandal is likely to be honey. Um, uh, I mean, there's been a, there's been a number of honey scandals, and actually the largest prosecuted financial food fraud case ever in the history of the United States was wow. honey, uh, sixty million dollars worth of fake honey. But um, but uh, I, I'm actually I'm focusing right now more on solutions. Um, yeah. And you know, like yeah. we we're talking about the seafood. The there's yeah. a lot of things happening in the world of seafood that I think are going to change uh, the, the landscape dramatically better for consumers in the next few years. There's a lot of technology being developed to to sort of reduce fake food across the board. Um, you know, the whole uh, sort of a return to artisanal farming. There's, there, there's just a lot of um, a lot of more, you know, hopeful news coming and that's kind of you know what i'm looking at right now fantastic and you know anyone can hopefully you know read this book and be inspired to join that movement because once you're you know thank you so much for doing all this research to kind of enlighten us to to all these problems because you know i'm sure there are many solutions so so kudos to to solving uh some of them um Great. Well, thank you so much, Larry. And uh, it's a, it's a really great to have you on the show. Um, we're so excited for this book, and we hope everyone gets their hands on it. It's um, out um, from Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill, Real Food, Fake Food. And uh, cool. Thanks, everyone, at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 